You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis 30, beginning in verse 25. As our brother and friend Michael Granger says, this is no formality. What we are reading are the very words of God. As soon as Rachel bore Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, that's his father-in-law, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for I have served you that I may go for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and now it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? Verse 31, he said, that is Laban, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. And he put them in charge of his sons. And he set, verse 36, he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Verse 40, and Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black and the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they may breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Verse 43, thus the man, that is Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then Jacob said to, then the Lord said to Jacob, excuse me, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and has changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks were bore bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. Verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah, verse 14, answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? House, Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured all our money. Verse 16, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban, verse 19, had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Rachel tricked, or rather Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he had intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. This is God's word. Please be seated. In the Bud home, when it is bedtime, it is a wild ride. We have four children and we love them all dearly. When it's time for our bed, our children become what we call thirsty theologians. At once, as soon as their heads hit the pillow, they're dehydrated and thirsty. I need water. I need water. Dad, I need water. Suddenly, they're dehydrated. They're thirsty. And as soon as we get them their water, they become theologians. Suddenly, all all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they've got deep theological questions. What is the meaning of life, Father? Explain to me again how the Trinity works. And of course, we are on to their their tactics by now. But now I've got a younger crop coming up, River and Ime. They are two thirsty theologians, but they are also conspiracy theorists (laughs) at bedtime. 
They are convinced that monsters and bad guys and and evil animals are all conspiring to come into our home and overtake our family. And they come up with elaborate conspiracies on how this is all taking place. And behind that is a real fear. They're fearful of what's going to happen. They're going to sleep. They're going to be vulnerable. And so what I do with our more younger ones is what I did with our older ones. I would say, look at your, look at your daddy. Look at, look at how strong I am. You know, and this just doesn't work with the older ones anymore. But, but I said, look, feel my, feel my muscles. And, and if I did that to the older ones, they're like, yeah, that's why we're worried. That's why we're, <laughs> that's why we're afraid. But I try to reassure my kids of the strength of their father so that they can rest at night knowing that they are protected. As parents, you know this. This is one of our duties as parents is to protect our our children. And we employ all means, silly or not, to assure them that they are safe. I am not so sure that this isn't the case with us as adults. I'm not so certain that as adults, we've graduated from this deep need for protection. The fears that we face may not be monsters or evil animals that are conspiring against us. But we all fear being taken advantage of when we are most vulnerable. And so we protect We put protection, we put layers between us and things that can harm us. Being overpowered by someone or something. If you were a child and you experienced any sort of abuse by your parents, being overpowered by someone stronger than you is one of the scariest feelings in the world. But beyond that, corrupt politicians who will gladly roll over people to win elections. We're leery today, aren't we, of institutional abuse. We're fearful of mandates after mandates. At the end of the day, we don't want to become sheep among wolves. I saw a bumper sticker some months ago. I'm not a sheep. What do we do with that as Christians? Who over and over in the scriptures, we're called sheep. Not wolves, not lions, not strong men. Sheep. So what do we do? This was the issue facing our young patriarch, Jacob. He was a sheep among a wolf. In fact, the first scene in this story that we read shows a more powerful Laban taking advantage of a less powerful Jacob. At first he did it with his wives or with his daughters. He used his daughters as leverage and he swindles 14 years of service out of Jacob, takes advantage of him then and now he's doing it again. It's true that Jacob has been the trickster and he will, he, will to, he will succumb to that temptation again in our story. But here in this moment, it's Jacob being taken advantage of. 
And now Jacob is ready to leave. He is tired of being taken advantage of. Laban is doing everything in his power to keep Jacob there in order that Laban may continue to prosper. That's why. Laban wants the money. First, Laban offers to pay Jacob a a higher wage. What if I pay you more? What if I pay you a livable wage? And Jacob refuses. But then Jacob says, what if I pasture your flock? Jacob has a deal for Laban. What if I pasture your flock one last time? And as a payment, if you let me go, I will only take the spotted and the speckled, the multicolored livestock as my payment. But you've got to let me go. And Laban likes that deal. Laban likes that deal because he conspires. Look at verses 34 and 36 again. Notice Laban's reaction. Laban says, good. I like that deal. Let it be as you have said, Jacob. But that day, what happens? But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted. Every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. Verse 36. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So Laban's tactic is clear. By removing the multicolored livestock, he is depleting Jacob's potential possessions. He's cooked this deal. He's poisoned the water hole. He was crossing his fingers behind his back when he was making a business deal with Jacob. And he wants to deplete his potential possessions so that Jacob will see what he doesn't have and not want want to go back to Canaan. In short, the now rich and powerful Laban is taking advantage of little Jacob, a wolf and a sheep. The big guy is swindling the under-resourced little guy. You see the wolf circling him, licking his chops. However, Laban again underestimates the one to whom Jacob belongs Laban thinks he is pulling a fast one on Jacob, and to some degree he is. Jacob doesn't know all that's going on. But there is another player in the game. There is another one seated at the table when the deal is being made. There is another entity involved in this deal, and Laban is about to feel the consequences of messing with one of Yahweh's anointed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he, that is God, catches the wise in their craftiness. The proverb says, one digs a hole in order for another to fall into it, but they themselves fall into it. This is what's happening with Laban. He is going to be caught in his craftiness. He is going to fall into the pit that he dug himself. He moves his livestock, the ones that he's picked out, he moves them three days away from Jacob, which now allows Jacob the time and the space to do what he is about 
to do. And this leads us to our second scene in the story, the blessing of Jacob. So first we have a shady deal. And now we have a blessing from God to Jacob. Look at verse 37 and following. Genesis 30, verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, verse 39, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. One of the reasons I love church is because we get to read stuff like this. Like, who, who read, I mean, unless you came prepared, like you don't really read this kind of thing and we're confronted with it and we have to say, what on earth is going on here? It would appear that the Bible is advocating for what is a theory known as prenatal stimuli. The idea that you can manipulate the birth of an animal, the appearance of the birth of an animal or a human by simply changing some of the atmosphere around the breeding. That's called prenatal stimuli. And while some of these theories have led to good old wives' tales and folklore, none of it really does go beyond that. There is no scientific evidence to suggest that you can manipulate your surroundings and change the outcome or appearance of of your baby. Instead, it appears that Jacob is acting similar to his wives, Rachel and Leah. Remember when they were both barren and they went and their son, uh, was it Reuben, found these mandrakes these fruits in the field. Some of you are like, yeah, I kind of remember that. Reuben founds, finds these mandrakes. We call them magical mandrakes. But there was this old wives' tale, this, this theory, this superstition that this fruit would, would, would allow women to be more fertile. And it appears that Jacob too had adopted some cultural superstition. In ancient Mesopotamia, this sort of prenatal stimuli was uh, an old wives' tale. If you, if you strip the, the, the sticks and you create these sort of lines, then you're going to get lined and multicolored flock. And so it appears that Jacob had adopted this cultural superstition just in case God wouldn't come through. Just in case. He's hedging his bet just a little bit. So Laban's got his fingers crossed behind his back, knowing that he's going he's gonna to spoil this deal. And Jacob, too, in the back of his mind, has got a contention plan if God doesn't come through. I think this is a superstition because before Jacob implored his tactic of peeling the sticks and so forth, God had already told him what was going to take place. And God doesn't mention any peeling of sticks or anything. Just flip over to chapter 31, beginning in verse 4. This is Jacob now recounting all that has taken place. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with 
me. Jump down to verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here am I. So God shows up in a dream before this all takes place. And he says, lift your eyes, verse 12, and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen that all, I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So it appears, I'm happy to be wrong here, but it appears that Jacob already had this promise from the Lord and yet to back up his plan, just in case God doesn't come through on this dream that he has, this vision of spotted and striped animals being made, he comes up with this superstition as a backup plan. But all the while, God's intention is to be with Jacob despite Jacob and despite Laban's clear ambitions to harm him. God, in other words, catches the wise in their craftiness. Beloved, the point is there is always another player at the table. As God's children, we are never alone. This scene ends with remarkable blessing. Again, despite Jacob's contingency plans. Jacob acquires massive wealth while Laban's riches dwindle into nothing. How ironic. Laban dug a pit and he fell into it himself. So we have a a shady deal that leads to God's blessing of Jacob and our final scene I've entitled the great escape. Jacob flees Laban. Look at verse 17 of chapter 31. So Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels. So that just goes to show you his wealth. Camels move faster than donkeys. He's got some, he's stacked that paper. He's got some cash. So he sets his sons and his wives on camels. So he must have multiple camels. And he drove away all the livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, verse 20, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. Verse 21, he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, the river, the great river, and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So they are off, off they go. The family and their very multicolored flock They leave from Padan Aram to Canaan. Remember, Jacob originally left his father's home in Canaan to Padan Aram in order to acquire a wife. And now he has two wives and he's got 11 sons and he has a whole wealth of possession with him. God was truly with Jacob all the way through. 
But listen, not because of Jacob's flawless obedience. And this is the part that just messes with us all the time because we want a good guy and a bad guy. And here God is blessing Jacob who can't hardly pull it together. He is a patriarch in progress, but he is far from perfect. And yet God is with Jacob and he is blessing Jacob despite Jacob's disobedience and failure. Yet, and we see this even in these, this final scene of them leaving Padan Aram, we see them with all of their wealth still not sure if God's going to come through. I'll take those household gods with me. Just a little extra, just a little more security. The wolves are still out there. There is still danger, just a little bit more of assurance. I'm going to just take this as another backup plan. Additionally, Jacob was not told to leave in secret. God didn't say leave in the night in secret. Jacob decides to do that himself. He's still not sure if God's going to protect him. Even though God has made his promise at Bethel, even though God has prospered at the hands of when he is at the hands of Laban, still hedging their bets, still wondering if they are alone at the table. And so my question as we close is, what about you this morning? What about us? This is, here's the big so what of this sermon, of this text. What about you this morning? Are you tired of feeling like a vulnerable little sheep around ferocious wolves, whatever they are, a family member, culture, society, a politician, a party, a mandate. What about you? Are you ready this morning to take matters into your own hands? The wisdom of the world, if that's you, here's an option. The wisdom of the world says, fight fire with fire. Don't be a doormat. Meekness is weakness. Fight fire with fire. Use the tactics of the wolf. You're just going to get torn apart. That's the wisdom of the world. Do away with the Sermon on the Mount. Turning the other cheek. Who does that? Who wins with that? That's weakness. That's one option. What does the wisdom of the cross say to sheep who are among wolves? At times, Jacob is spot on, isn't he? He is in progress. And at times, he is spot on. He says to Rachel and Leah, I see that your father does not regard me with the favor as he once did, but... The God of my father has been with me. Calvin in his commentary says this, quote, the more meekly the righteous behave, the more ferociously the world attacks them. It's not going to get easier here. 
the more meekly the righteous behave, the more ferociously the world attacks them. But although in this world we are like sheep, exposed to ravenous wolves, Calvin writes, we must not be afraid of being wounded or even killed by them for our heavenly shepherd protects us. That is a metaphor. We are like sheep. But that metaphor, apart from another metaphor, that God is our shepherd, is utterly hopeless. To be a sheep without a shepherd is hopeless. But two metaphors go together. We are sheep, but we have a shepherd. And he is always at the table. When we're going to bed at night, like little children needing assurances, the wisdom of the world is saying, fight fire with fire. Become a wolf. No, become a lion. But the wisdom of the cross whispers, weakness is that strange door into the strength of God because in your weakness, you call out for your shepherd. And your shepherd is strong. He's stronger than any wolf. He's stronger than any pack of wolf. He's stronger than any lion. He is indeed the lion from the tribe of Judah. And he will see us home. Jacob is on his way home. We are on our way home. And there are wolves all around us. There's our flesh we got to deal with. That's hard enough. And there are Labans all around us with their fingers crossed behind their back, cooking the books, spoiling the cake, whatever metaphor you want to use. And two options appear. Wisdom of the world, wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the cross leaves you with a capable shepherd. And he will see you home. Even if the wolves take you out now. They've just made your journey a little bit shorter. When Christ hung upon a Roman cross, it was the most pitiful sight to behold. It was pitiful weakness. The man who claimed to be God is pinned against a cross. The one who walked on water and the one who multiplied the elements is pinned to a cross. What a pitiful, weak scene. All his friends had abandoned him. Weakness on display for the world to see. And God the Father was there. But God the Father was not there to comfort his son. No, the father looked upon his son with smite, with anger. Anger filled the heart of God the father against the son. Not because the son had done anything wrong. Not because the son was a Jacob. The son was the true Israel. He was the faithful Israel. And the father is with the son, but the father is there smiting the son with divine anger. For our sake, Paul says, he made him, his son, to be sin. The one who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means Christ became abandoned by the Father in his darkest hour so that we would never be alone in ours. Beloved, that is the wisdom of the cross. What the world sees as weakness, we now look back as remarkable strength. And the father punishes the son, pushes the son out so that he could bring us in. In all of our dealings in life, we are not alone. Because of the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, God is always in the room. No one, no weapon formed against us shall what? Prosper. He is our protection. He will see us home. May we say with Jacob, I see that this world does not regard me with favor as it once did. But the God of my father is with me.